0: Good morning. God is a good God. The title of this morning's message is Yahweh Sabaoth, my Redeemer. Yahweh Sabaoth means the Lord of hosts. And it means the God who has power above all powers. He is the God who is above the sun, the moon, and the stars. He is the God above and beyond who has his own army full of angels waiting to go to battle on my behalf. That is Yahweh Sabaoth. It says in Isaiah 47:4, As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is His name, the Holy One of Israel. As for our Redeemer, Yahweh Sabaoth is His name. Our Redeemer's name is Yahweh Sabaoth. In studying the names of God, it has really helped me to pay attention when I read to the Old Testament to look for the picture It's so easy to read in Scripture and just glide right over those titles and not let them paint a picture for you. Yahweh Sabaoth paints a picture for us, and it's supposed to. It is the God who has power above all power, and it is this God who has chosen to be my Redeemer. I want us to look this morning at how the Lord of hosts was Israel's Redeemer in the Old Testament and how the same Yahweh Sabaoth is our Redeemer in the New Testament. One of the things that we continue to see as we look at the names of God is that Yahweh is the same. (laughs) God did not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The revelation became fuller, but He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They couldn't physically see Yahweh Sabaoth in the Old Testament, but they recognized His invisible hand on their behalf. They consistently saw the orchestration that whatever God said, God did. He was visible by what he did. Although the new covenant is very different from the old, we still have the same God, the one true and living God, and he is our Redeemer. Redemption makes me cry. I'll tell you that right now. Redemption makes me cry because it makes you so grateful. When you see it for what it is, you can't help but be grateful. Our scripture this morning is found in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is a lot like the book of Jeremiah. (laughs) In fact, all of these preachers, unfortunately, get to preach judgment. (laughs) But they also get to preach comfort and promise and consolation. And we see the same thing in Isaiah. Isaiah is divided normally into two books. Sometimes some scholars divide it into three. But the first half, chapters 1 through 39, is the prophet Isaiah telling Israel that there is no God But God. There is no God but Yahweh. There is no God. He says, I know that you chop down trees and you form idols out of wood and you cover them with metal. He says, but they're not a God. They cannot save you. In one of the chapters, he says, Look, you pack up your gods with you, you put them on your donkey, you have to carry your God everywhere you go. Wouldn't you like a God who could carry you? This is crazy these are not gods you're bowing down to demons there's no redemption there's no salvation in these false gods so that is come back to god the one true and living god before judgment comes don't waste your time with all of these false gods he kind of does the sandwich method false gods are bad real god is good false gods are bad real god is good Judgment or salvation? You get to choose, but please choose the right thing. And of course they don't. (laughs) What Isaiah does is over and over he tells them, Yahweh is forgiving. Yahweh is merciful. Even though you have strayed, even though you have gone far away, he doesn't care when it comes to you coming back. That doesn't prevent him from receiving you. Come back again. That is always God's heart come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. It doesn't matter how far you think you've fallen. I will always receive you. Isaiah also gets to remind them God is a God of justice and he cannot allow Israel to destroy herself because in her lineage is the Messiah. In her lineage is the promised Redeemer. In her and her alone does the future of mankind reside. And so he will have to orchestrate judgment in order to, one, protect them from themselves, but two, punish the unrighteousness. Sometimes when we look at the Old Testament, we think, that's hard, God. (laughs) But what we have to remember is that we can't look at the Old Testament through the lens of our own eyes. We can't look at the Old Testament through the context of the New Covenant. We can't look at it through the context of America in the year 2016. Their world was very different. Very different. We think evil runs rapid now. You should have seen it then. Okay? God despises, despises suffering. And if man were left to himself, all he would ever do was force suffering on others all the days of his life. Man would utterly self destruct if left to himself. We tend to think that people are generally good. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> Given the opportunity, mankind always reverts back to the worst possible case scenario. In Genesis 6:5 says this, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that's what he said before the flood. God was kind of hoping things would get better after the flood. (laughs) But in Jeremiah chapter 7, it says this, beginning with verse 24. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward, not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt. Do you hear that? How long God's been keeping track? (laughs) From the day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. We just don't realize just how bad things were. Can you imagine a world with no justice? Can you imagine an America without any police? Think about that. Okay, that's the kind of atmosphere these people lived in. God had to step in. Primarily, first and foremost, because he had to bring Christ through Israel. But God despises suffering. We see how God allows judgment to overtake people. We can fall into the temptation to say, oh, that's mean. But it isn't. Would we want a judge to allow people like Ted Bundy to continue killing? What would we think of a judge who said, oh, it's okay, slap your hand, just don't do that again, and send them back out to do the same thing over and over again? We would have a fit. We understand that because we are righteous, we love justice. God loves justice. God wants everyone to be treated justly. He actually does. But there was none of that then. There was none of that back then. God despises evil and sin because it brings only death, destruction, and suffering. There is no suffering in heaven. And God said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's desire? That there should be no suffering. That human beings should not inflict suffering on one another. But they did. And unfortunately, they still do. So, we see in the book of Isaiah, God does what he says he's going to do. He's going to preserve Israel. He fights for her because he loves her and because he's going to use her to bring forth the Christ. In the rest of the book, chapters 40 through 66, deal mostly with God's promises of restoration and the promise of the coming Messiah, who is the suffering servant who purchases the redemption of all mankind. He also promises to bring forth his eternal kingdom, both physically and spiritually. Now, this scripture, Isaiah 47, 4, As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. When we look at that, we can say, well, that's real nice, but it's in a very strange context when you actually read chapter 47. The title in my Bible for that chapter is The Humiliation of Babylon. (laughs) You wouldn't expect to hear this declaration of greatness in the midst of all of this judgment, but there it is right in the middle. It was prophesied, approximately 100 years in advance that Babylon would be humiliated by Yahweh Sabaoth, Israel's defender, the God who has power above all power, the God who has an angel army ready to go at his word. Isaiah prophesies that because Israel is eventually taken captive and taken to Babylon, that's her little time out, protective custody. (laughs) He tells her what's going to happen after she's there. Through Isaiah, God prophesies that he will use a king named Cyrus. Isaiah names this king nearly 100 years before this king actually reads about it himself. Now this is an amazing thing. Imagine I had a book written by my God, and I said, You know, about 100 years ago, God told me all about you. Here, look and read. Wouldn't you be a tad amazed? (laughs) Well, that is exactly what happened with King Cyrus. I'm going to read you Isaiah 44:21 21 through 28. This is part of the prophecy about God using this king. He says to Israel, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me. Why? Because I have redeemed you. Sing, O heaven, for the Lord Yahweh has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it, for Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Redemption makes God really happy too. <laughs> Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who cries to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, here he is, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, "She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid." This is an amazing prophecy, because Israel is in captivity. God gives Isaiah this prophecy, a hundred years or so before Cyrus hears about it. <laughs> and Cyrus is not. A believer if you will a worshiper of the God of Israel he has his own gods in fact in that time people understood that if you had the right God that God would enable you to conquer so this king Cyrus he's the king of Persia reads this prophecy about himself and says you know I'm really special the God of Israel recognizes how special I am. Uh, I get to be his chosen vessel. He accepted it as an honor, and it was. What I love about this is this is Yahweh Sabaoth at his greatest. He is like, Look, I can arrange things and orchestrate things, and I don't have to make anybody do anything. I can just arrange things and orchestrate things so they'll want to do it. <laughs> That's what he did he made this king look at himself as the chosen of the god of israel the rest of the prophecy really refers to the lord jesus christ but that's okay because god knows how to get you where he wants you to be and get you to do what he wants you to do (laughs) and what he wanted cyrus to do was to set israel free without a fight without a fight they didn't have to do anything does that sound familiar? He didn't have to do anything to get this freedom. <laughs> it was all done for them. And so what he does, he does, he does exactly what the scripture says. He sets them free, and he gives them the money to rebuild their temple. He lets them go back to their own land if they wanted to. They didn't have to. And he says, oh, by the way, I will do exactly what Yahweh says I will do. I will rebuild your temple. And so he gives them the funds to do that. This was prophesied in advance so that everyone would see that this was not the work of the king of Persia. Even the king of Persia recognized that it was the invisible hand of Yahweh Sabaoth at work on behalf of Israel. God alone got the glory. God alone was Israel's defender and redeemer. So how exactly is Yahweh Sabaoth her redeemer? What exactly is a redeemer according to the Old Testament? Well, a redeemer is someone who paid the price for a relative's debt. In Leviticus 25 it says this, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest kinsman, slash redeemer, shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So basically, if the brother sells his property because he can't pay his debt, property is supposed to stay in the family. It's part of your inheritance. So your nearest relative, if he wanted to, (laughs) that's <laughs> uh, a condition you might not be there <laughs> could redeem the property he had legal right to redemption of the property and in the same chapter down further in verses 47-49 through 49, it says this if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or the sojourner with you or to the member of the stranger's clan then after he is sold he may be redeemed. You see, it wasn't necessarily a permanent selling. There was the legal right of redemption. So one of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. The whole point of redemption is that there is a price paid that the person who is in debt cannot pay. A redeemer is the one with the checkbook. (laughs) <laughs> redeemer is the one who paid the required price to set a family member free from slavery or to buy back their property. We've just seen that Yahweh Sebayoth did just that for Israel. He set them free from captivity and he returned to them their property. The Hebrew word for the word redeemer is the word goel. And part of the responsibility of a goel, a redeemer, was to make sure that the lineage of the nearest kin would be preserved by procuring an offspring for him in the cases where the relative had no male heirs or descendants. We see this in the book of Ruth, where Naomi and her husband go to Moab and they have two sons and the sons grow up and get married and then they die. All the men in the family die. Don't go to Moab, it's not a good idea. (laughs) So Naomi wants to go back to her land Then her land has been sold but there is the right of redemption. So Boaz, as a near kinsman, has the ability, if he so chooses, to redeem the property. But with him comes the bride. The whole purpose is to preserve the lineage of that family. That's exactly what we see God, Sabaoth, has just done in the case of Israel. He has preserved the lineage so that the son with the inheritance will come forth. So, we see he truly is the Redeemer of Israel. The law for that particular rule for a Goel is in Deuteronomy 25.5, and it says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, technically, in this particular law, he doesn't use the word Redeemer. But we see that it is used that way in the book of Ruth. The whole point, though, was restoration, the preservation of lineage and the restoration of inheritance. There was one more type of goel in the Old Testament, and it's in Deuteronomy 19. It's called the goel hadam. It is the avenger of blood. It says this, If anyone hates his brother and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, they had cities of refuge, Then the elders of that city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood, so that he may die. This is about justice. And that's what we see God has already done in the case of Israel too. He has brought justice. Those who overtook Israel were actually then overtaken themselves. He avenged their blood. So we see a redeemer is to ensure the freedom of his relatives, ensure the safe inheritance of his relatives, and he is to bring forth justice on behalf of his relatives. So in the Old Testament, we see God did just that. That's why they, with glee, were shouting that he was their redeemer. It was completely legal transactions that were not reversible. Someone couldn't take objection. You know when there's a wedding ceremony, if anyone here objects, there was none of that. (laughs) These were legal transactions. God always works legally and justly and He loves justice. So we see that He redeemed Israel from captivity by providing freedom from slavery. It was God's hand and God's hands alone that brought out Israel. That's why He is called the Redeemer. There is always a cost. This is one of the things that the Lord was speaking to me about. There's always a cost when there's justice involved. God doesn't like having to have one group of people overtake another group of people. There's a cost in human life. God counts that cost. God cares about that cost. But God loves justice. He wants the evil to stop. He doesn't want to allow people to continue in injustice. And so justice always has a price. But we have to remember God hates suffering. And that because He hates suffering, He brings in justice. It was God's hand that both Israel's lineage and her future inheritance were restored. And it was God's hand as the avenger of Israel that the Babylonians were overtaken by Persia. The Israelites didn't do anything to set themselves free. They didn't conquer any enemies. They didn't win back any battles by any battles. They did nothing to facilitate their redemption. It was all the work of the invisible hand of Yahweh Sabaoth. It is only the helpless, the utterly helpless, that need a Redeemer. It is only the utterly hopeless that need a redeemer. You see, if we could pay the price ourselves, we could. If we could redeem our land or redeem our brother or redeem a nation, if we could do it ourselves, we would. Human beings are that way. (laughs) Human beings have a tendency to actually turn away from redemption, oddly enough. There's a true story of a man who was convicted of a terrible crime. His family was very wealthy and very influential. And they succeeded in getting a pardon from the President of the United States for this family member. But because he was guilty, because he felt the weight of his guilt, he denied his own pardon. He walked away from it. Because he had that sense of justice. I deserve this. Thankfully, we don't have to get what we deserve. We have the opportunity to say yes to redemption. A lot of the world is just like that man. They say no thanks. I'll pay my own price. I'm willing to take the consequences of my actions when they could walk away free and changed. So we see that in the Old Testament, Yahweh said by oath, showed himself strong as their redeemer. Jeremiah 50, 34 says this, their redeemer is strong. <laughs> That's a lot right there. Their Redeemer is strong. Let me tell you how strong He is. He is the Lord of hosts. He is Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the God who has power above all power. He is the God who has His own army. <laughs> he is strong on their behalf, and He was faithful in showing Himself strong on Israel's behalf. In the New Testament, Jesus is Yahweh Sabaoth, our kinsman Redeemer. He had a different kind of redemption, a better kind of redemption in the New Testament. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they took all of mankind with them, and every man, woman, and child ever born became a slave to sin, to Satan, and to self, with no way out. What they did, they could not reverse, not by being good, not by trying hard, not by offering sacrifices. There was no way out. They became utterly helpless to help themselves. And God told them they needed a Redeemer. What He did was He says, I'm going to provide one, but it's going to be a while. (laughs) In the meantime, I have this system (laughs) we're going to (laughs) use. And we see the system of offering sacrifices in place of ourselves. But in the New Testament, our Redeemer has taken our place. Yahweh said by oath, though, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit orchestrated that invisible hand, bringing forth the Redeemer. No one would have thought that a Redeemer would have been born in a manger. Nobody would have thought he would have been born in a place called Nazareth. It was that unseen hand orchestrating all things. They could only be seen when their eyes were open. But Jesus has always been meant to be our kinsman redeemer. There are four qualifications for a redeemer. You have to be a kinsman. Number one, that's why it's called a kinsman redeemer. (laughs) You have to be related. (laughs) We read that scripture, a brother, uh, a cousin, an uncle, but you gotta be related. (laughs) God was not related to us. And so he wants to be our redeemer, so he has to become related to us. So he wraps himself in flesh and he shows up in a manger in Bethlehem. He also must be a free man. He also must have the necessary resources to pay the purchase price. And he must be willing to actually pay the purchase price. Jesus didn't meet all of those four qualifications. He became our near kinsman by becoming one of us. In Philippians 2, 7 and 8, it says this, but emptied himself speaking of Jesus, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Hebrews 2.14 For as much then as the children, that would be us, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He became like us, so we could become like him. Qualification number one, he truly is our near kinsman. Qualification number two, he must be a free man. Slaves do not buy slaves (laughs) and set them free. You have to be a free man to do that. Slaves don't have the power, position, or resources because slaves themselves are utterly helpless. So in what way is Jesus a free man? Jesus had to be free from the same captivity that all of humanity had fallen into. Though he was related to us, he couldn't have the same sin debt we had. Otherwise, he would have been utterly helpless as well. And so he had to be born of a virgin. He had to be brought forth by the power of the Holy Spirit so that he could be without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Praise God. but who in every respect, again, in every respect, he knows what it is like to be us. In every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Peter 2.22 says this, He, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was truly a free man. Qualification number two, check. Qualification number three, He has to have the necessary resources to pay the purchase price. What is the purchase price? What is the price for redeeming all of mankind? The purchase price is the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you, that would be us, were ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without spot or blemish. Jesus was the only human being ever born on the face of the earth that was born with sinless blood, the blood of God himself. So only Jesus, he was the one and only, who could ever pay the purchase price of redemption. But then comes the big question. Would he be willing? Would he be willing to pay the purchase price? I think you know the answer. He related to us by becoming one of us. He was a truly free man, and he had the resources. But would he be willing? Ephesians chapter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his will. It was his good pleasure to pay the purchase price. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had a meeting before God ever created anything. And he says, we're going to do this amazing thing. We're going to make human beings with the ability to choose. And there's going to be a cost for that because they're going to choose wrong. (laughs) And there's going to be a cost for that. Are we willing to pay the cost to redeem them out of their bad choice? And his decision before anyone ever did anything was yes. How expensive was the price that he was willing to pay? What exactly did he have to dish out? Isaiah 53 tells us very well. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. And he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But Yahweh hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was willing, and Jesus did, pay the purchase price in his own blood to redeem us completely from the power of the enemy. But Jesus didn't die just for our sins. He didn't die just to save us from going to hell. What he accomplished was so much more even though he was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it wasn't just for the forgiveness of sins that he died. You see, in the Old Testament, they brought that temporary measure, a lamb, and it was slain on the altar for the penalty of sin. But all they did was slay it. It wasn't smitten. It wasn't afflicted. It wasn't bruised or wounded. It wasn't beaten with stripes. It wasn't crowned with thorns. Nobody spat on it. Nobody slapped it. Nobody mocked it. It wasn't made to suffer in any way. All it did was lay down, and they took his life quietly. But why was our lamb meant to suffer? It was more than 30 years ago that it was in these scriptures that I became convinced. that salvation was more than accepting Jesus and hanging on for dear life. (laughs) <laughs> that there was more to what he did than just telling me, I forgive your sins. Now wait until heaven for the blessing. Jesus provided so much more than forgiveness of sins. Jesus died in a way that he could take on himself our suffering. Remember, God hates suffering. There's no suffering in heaven because God hates suffering. God hates the suffering caused by the curse. He hates the suffering that came from the fall. He hates the sufferings that come from hell itself. God despises evil because God despises suffering that evil brings forth. On the cross, Jesus bore our sickness and our disease, our anxiety and our calamity, our anguish, our pain, our grief, and our sorrow because he didn't want us to bear it. Are you bearing them this morning? He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us and bearing in his body the fruit of those curses themselves. In Galatians 3.13, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. Our Redeemer was willing, not just to pay the price of shedding his blood, but the price of bearing the curse. This is a legal transaction. Jesus, like the Redeemer in the Old Testament, paid the purchase price to set the near kinsmen free from every kind of slavery. No addictions, no slavery of any kind, no condemnation. That's all slavery, and Jesus did that for us. Good Redeemers in the Old Testament paid the purchase price to ensure that what was lost because of a debt would be restored. What was lost was a kingdom. And in Christ, and in his payment on the cross, he restored to us, his near kinsmen, the kingdom and all of its blessings. A good redeemer in the Old Testament was an avenger of blood who brought forth justice for their families, and Jesus did that for us too. You see, our Father is fully satisfied that justice has been served in regard to sin. Justice came on the cross. Justice came on the cross. All of our sins, all of our mistakes, all of our failures for all mankind justice was served on the cross so that all of mankind can have the pardon and have the choice to either accept that pardon and walk free or reject that pardon and keep the punishment we have a redeemer we have a redeemer and he took in his body all the power of the curse upon him so that none of us ever need to walk with a curse in our life I know everyone here is saved I know everyone here knows Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior but there's something that happens to us when we as believers we look to the cross and understand you, you Lord Jesus were willing to pay the price for me I was utterly helpless and now I'm free and I don't deserve it at all Jesus is a wonderful deliverer and savior. He has fulfilled the role of kinsman redeemer for everyone who will believe. Amen. Father, I thank you for being who you are, that you are Yahweh Sebaoth, the God who orchestrates on behalf of those you love. I thank you, Father God, that you surround us with angels. You are always at work on our behalf. But even more than that, Father, I thank you for orchestrating my redemption, for becoming a man, for coming to earth, for willing to be just like me so that I could become just like you. I thank you that you were willing to pay the price to pull me out of every kind of slavery and that slavery no longer can call me back. I've been made free. I thank you, Jesus, for satisfying the justice of God. That you have paid and overpaid for every crime. That your blood and your blood alone was sufficient to satisfy the justice of God. We thank you that you did all of this because of your great love for us. That you so loved us that you gave us your Son. That you so loved us that there was no price too big There was no price too hard. There was nothing that would keep you from rescuing us. And we say thank you. Thank you for being our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen.